Good morning. You know, there are times in my arrogance that I feel adequate to preach. Just being honest with you. It could be because I think I understand the passage well. It could be because, uh, you know, I think uh, I've been obeying that passage. Um, it's foolish thinking, but that's just me being honest with you. But then there's passages like this one where I don't feel adequate to preach it. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says he's hard-pressed between the two. He doesn't know which one he wants to sort of obey or where his desires are pressing in. Uh, And guys, I don't know about you, but I wish I could say I was there, but I'm not there. I want to be there, but I'm not there. Just this struggle of just dying to be with Jesus. And so I don't feel adequate in that way in preaching this passage. a hard passage to preach in that way. He mentions in this passage, as I said, that he's hard-pressed between these two decisions. Now, to be clear, he's not thinking about superficially ending his life. Paul has just been a Christian long enough to know that if he keeps following Jesus and, and obeying Jesus, then something bad could possibly happen to him. That's what he's talking about. And he's okay with whatever happens as long as Christ gets proclaimed. And again, that's just not oftentimes my experience. I don't know about you. Maybe it's oftentimes your experience, but it's just oftentimes not my experience. I am hopeful that I can get there. And as I was studying this passage and coming under the weight of this passage, of what this passage is teaching us, and considering the thought that I would have to have to preach this passage and call us to obey it, the thought of it all was very weighty. And I was praying to the Lord this week, and I said something like this. I said, Lord, this feels like what I'm going to have to call the church to. It's going to feel like telling the church to climb Mount Everest in an hour. That's what it feels like. And I'm afraid, God, that when I start calling them to living as Christ, dying as gain, they're just going to say, then I'm out. I'm just not going to even try to climb the mountain. And so it was at that point, as I was praying this week, I feel like the Spirit met me and comforted me. Because it was at that point He began to communicate to me, the Spirit began to comfort me, to remind me it's good to feel needy. It's good to feel like you can't obey this. It's good to know, Nathan, you can't do this. Because what that means is you're going to need me. And we as Westerners don't often feel that, do we? We as Westerners, we have everything that we want and most everything that we, we have everything that we need and most everything that we want, right? So we don't, we're not used to feeling needy. And so it's so good to come here and sense our need in Christ. I hope that you're encouraged by that. So if you're a Christian this morning and we work through this and you feel the weight of this passage, be encouraged at the grace of Christ to meet you in this passage and be encouraged. We need to ask the Spirit of God to encourage us in our moment of need. And so let me pray and ask Him to do that and then we'll take a look at the passage. Father, we need Your help. So I pray that we as a church would feel the weight of this passage. And as we do, God, may we then sense our need for the Spirit to work. And as He comes, we pray that the boldness of Christ would manifest itself in our lives. Help us now.
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, We find in this passage, verse 21, that's a good summary of the passage, verse 21, to live as Christ, die as gain. That's a good summary of what's happening in the passage. That's a good summary of verses 18 down to 26. So if you're wondering what this passage is about, that's what it's about. All right. But in order for us to understand, better understand what that means, what I'm going to do, guys, is I'm just going to walk us right through that passage, and I'm going to investigate the text as we go. All right, so it's going to be some sort of vegetables, as it were, as we're working through this, to try to understand it. It's a little meaty, a little difficult to kind of work through. And so that's what we're going to do. And as we go through that, after we do that, we're going to come back and do some application for the rest of the sermon. And you're going to notice as the sermon goes along, hopefully it's just getting drilling down, drilling down, drilling down, and eventually get more and more to our application and living out of it. So here we go. You ready? Here we go. Verse 12, you'll notice that Will read just a moment ago. That's our context, all right? Paul is suffering in order to advance the gospel. Last week we saw in verses 15 to 18, the first part of 18, that Paul's aim in life is to proclaim Christ. That's what we saw. And he doesn't really care if his name gets harmed in the process. He's going to rejoice no matter what comes as long as Christ is proclaimed. And he goes on in the second half of verse 18, coming to our verses for today, and he will rejoice. And then we get that connecting word in verse 19, for. He will rejoice. Why? For this reason. For what? Verse 19, for he knows that through prayer and the Spirit, he's going to be delivered. Now look at verse 19 and don't miss Paul's confidence there. Do you see that word no? Look at that word no. For I know, he says, For he knows that he's going to be delivered, all right? So friends, you should know, if you're new to the Christian faith or evaluating the Christian faith, the Christian faith is not a guess, okay? It's not a guess. It's not a wish. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not a sentimental dream, the Christian faith. Not at all. The Christian life is knowing. It's knowing a few things really, really well. Paul knows there. Paul rejoices because in his suffering, in his proclaiming, he knows that through your prayers, it says there, that's the prayers of the church, and through the help of the Spirit, note the language there, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, that is, I think he means, his suffering, his imprisonment is going to turn out for his deliverance. Paul knows that. He knows that. He is confident of that. So the prayers of this local church, combined with the help of the Spirit of Christ, they're going to work together to bring about his deliverance. He knows that. Now, what does he mean by deliverance? We've got to answer that question, right? Well, first off, it doesn't mean his release from prison. That would be easy to conclude from the passage, but that's not what it means. It's not what he means. The word for deliverance there, guys, is the same word that we normally use as translated for salvation. It's used 44 times in the Bible. This is an interesting fact. I was looking at it this morning. 44 times that word is used. And every single time, except this time, it's translated salvation. There's one other time it's translated strength. But So 42 times of the 44 times, it's always translated salvation. That gives us an indication of what's happening here when he uses this word deliverance. So what does he mean by deliverance? The word for deliverance, I mentioned, means salvation. So what Paul seems to be saying here is, He knows that the prayers of the church combined with the help of the Spirit are going to work together to bring about his deliverance. That is his vindication, his innocence, his blamelessness when he stands before God. That's what it means. 
When he stands before the heavenly courtroom of God. So this prayer meeting, the prayer meeting of the church, combined with the help of the Spirit of Christ, they're going to work together, Paul believes, he knows, to keep Paul's faith to the end no matter what comes, whether he lives or he dies. They are going to be the prayers and the Spirit are going to be the agents of his perseverance in the faith. They're going to be the confidence he has to proclaim Christ in those moments and be innocent, be blameless in that time. So he may not be vindicated by Caesar. He may not be vindicated by some earthly court that put him in this prison. That may not happen. But Paul is confident. He knows that whether he lives or he dies, Christ is going to be proclaimed as Jesus holds fast to Paul through his hands of two things, the prayers of the church and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on there. Note the continuation of his confidence in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Eager expectation and hope, guys. That's the language of confidence there. He has eager expectations, confident hope that he's not going to be ashamed. And ashamed means that, 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 that idea that we were just talking about. That when he stands before God, no matter he lives or he dies, Christ is going to be proclaimed. He's not going to be ashamed because he has the gospel. He's got, he's got the gospel, he's got the prayers of the church, got the ministry of the Spirit, and he's not going to be ashamed whether he lives or dies. He's got confident hope it's going to work out. Paul knows. He knows that he is not going to be ashamed when he is delivered to God through his living or his dying because... Of those two things, the prayers and the spirit. And so he's going to make a faithful proclamation through it all. He goes on in verse 20, but that with full courage. Note again the language, full courage. Not some courage, not hopeful courage, full courage. Now, as always, he says, Christ will be, will be honored in my body, whether by living or by, by life or by death. Now, that verb honored there is where we get our word mega or magnified. You heard Joey praying that earlier in the service. Paul is saying here, I have full courage that whether I live or die, Christ is going to get magnified. Christ is going to get, no matter what happens, I have full courage. Christ will be magnified. So what is happening here, guys, is is, is, what, what Paul is saying. He's saying the same thing that John the baptizer said years before him. Namely, he must increase. Christ must increase, I must decrease. That's what he's saying. And kids, what he's saying here is, Jesus needs to get big, I need to get small. That's what he's saying. He's confident that that's going to happen. So, and we get another connecting word there in verse 21 to explain this. For, see it again? For to live is Christ and die is gain. In other words, Paul is confident that through the prayers of the people combined with the help of the Spirit, he believes that whether he lives or he died, Christ is going to be honored. He's going to be magnified because to live is to magnify Christ and to die is to magnify Christ. So he's saying that no matter what happens, Christ is going to be exalted. And in all of that, going back to verse 18, Paul rejoices. He rejoices. Nothing can stop God from exalting his son through Paul's life because whether he lives or he dies, it's all going to work out for the greater glory of Christ. And in that, Paul is happy. Well, he goes on in verses 22 to 23, and there we get Paul's kind of conundrum, his struggle. 
Right? This is the struggle that is of his desires, what's going on in his heart. Verse 22 there, one part of the struggle is if he lives, it means fruitful labor. That's verse 22. Verse 23, but if he dies, he gets to be with Jesus. So he's hard-pressed. He's struggling to know what to do. Now, to be clear, friends, Paul does not get to make the decision for himself, per se, all right? Just to be clear about that. Paul is giving them an inkling. He's giving them an observation of what's going on in his heart. See, God is the author of life. He is sovereign over our world. He is sovereign over our lives. He knows when two sparrows fall to the ground. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He names the places and the boundaries and the times in which we live. Ultimately, God is the one that's going to work out this struggle. But Paul also has his place of making these choices too, right? And he's letting the church in on what he's thinking because he's trying to teach the church about their unity in Christ. See, it's easy to forget that when we start preaching the Bible. Paul, enlisting this stuff out, is teaching the Philippian church. He's showing his internal struggle so as to teach them. Remember the point of this book? To teach them about the unity that they have in Christ so that they would go on to see that Christ and his glory is better than anything else that they may be fighting about. And so he's giving them a preview into his heart so that they can learn from this. He wants Christ to be proclaimed, honored, magnified, And he'd like just to die and be with Jesus because by dying and being with Jesus, he'd honor Jesus by enjoying the presence of Jesus. But he also knows that by living, he can honor, magnify Christ and bring about that unity all the more. How? Take a look at verse 24. He can remain alive in the flesh because that would be more necessary on their account. That is, on the church's account, Grace Church Philippi's account. Well, how would that be more necessary? Well, verse 25 answers. Note his confidence again. Convinced of this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, here it comes, your progress and joy in the faith. So his living can bring about the progress and joy in the faith of this local church. So if Paul continues to live, he is convinced that he's going to be able to be with them and help them progress and have greater joy in the faith. And that would be better for them, for the church. And so there's his struggle. Paul would personally like to honor the Lord by dying and enjoying him. But he knows that if he lives, he can help this local church progress in the faith and have greater joy in the faith. We'll think about that more in a minute. And he then lands the plane in verse 26 with the result of all of this. Verse 26, so that in me, you, that's the church there, that's a second person plural, it's a church, may have ample or abundant cause to glory. Another way to say that would be boast. Cause to glory or boast in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, so Paul says, if I can keep on living, I'm going to be able to come down there. I'm going to bring about the progress and joy of your faith and which would result in more glory, more boasting, more desires in this church to lift up the name of Jesus because he comes. And so in that, Paul rejoices. And so let me back up, pull all this together. While in prison, Paul is writing to this local church, telling them about how the gospel is advancing through his suffering and that he rejoices because he's most interested in Christ's name being proclaimed, not in his own name. 
He knows that when it comes to his own circumstances, it doesn't really matter what happens to him because he's convinced he's going to get delivered. He's going to get vindicated because Christ is going to be exalted whether he lives or whether he dies. And he's going to be magnified, exalted by his dying, by his going to be with Jesus and enjoy Jesus, and by his living, bringing about the progress and joy of this church in the faith. Okay, there we go. There's the whole passage. Now, as a result of that, let's now think about trying and applying this passage to our lives. We've got the meaning now. So first off, let's evaluate. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. And in the back end, we'll come back to dying. But for now, let's think about what it means to live is Christ. Living is Christ. To live is Christ. Let's think about that. Paul says to live is Christ. In other words, he's telling us that true life is found by living for Christ. Okay, so after all, right, we Christians believe, we Christians believe that the Christ is life, don't we? Remember, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the what? Life. He tells us in John 14, 6, that well-known verse, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life, right? I am the life. Note Jesus doesn't say he's a life, one option of many. He says that he's the life, Jesus says. And that's what Paul's calling us to. That's what Paul is calling this church to. That to live is to live for Christ. If you have Christ, then you have life in him and you have life for him. And friends, the opposite is also true. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. Not true life. So this is exactly what John writes about in 1 John 5, 11 to 12. When he writes, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? In His Son. Whoever has the Son has what? Life. Exactly what Paul's writing here. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So friend, if Christ is not your ultimate hope for forgiveness and everlasting joy, then friend, you do not have true life. And it's our prayer for you that you would have life. Kids, that's what we want for you. That you would have life in Christ. And Christian, what about you? Why did God give you life? Why did He save you? You ever thought about that question? It's a simple question. Well, the Paul seems to be indicating that the answer to that question is, why did he save you so that whether living or dying, you would magnify Christ? That's why he saved you. He saved you so that, verse 26, you might glory in Christ. Why does this church exist? Because remember, he's writing to a church that we might glory in Christ. God saved you, beloved, so that the life of Christ would animate you to live for the glory of Christ in all things. In all things. So it's easy to think that the Christian faith, faith is just another kind of responsibility in our lives, right? We kind of tend to think that way. Inside the big circle of life, we got all these little circles, things like job, little circle. Inside bigger circle of life, job, relationships, church, hobbies. We tend to think of life that way. Or another way of saying that is Jesus is just one subject in the school of life. There's all these other scriptures. We tend to think of the Christian life that way, but that's not how the Bible would understand the Christian faith. It's not how God would understand it. 
God saved us so that the whole of our lives would be lived for the glory of Christ. Christ, friends, is the big circle that every other smaller circle inside of our lives is fitting inside. Christ's in his life, his glory is the big circle, as it were. Christ is the whole school, and we go to other classes inside of the school of the glory of Christ. Okay? This is what is meant by to live is Christ. To believe in Christ, to be a follower of Christ, is to subject your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your ambitions, your calendars, your ethics, your jobs, your relationships, for the greater purpose of magnifying Christ, making Him look really, really big. And friends, that's not just the intent of the kind of elites of the Christian faith. That's the intention of every Christian. Every Christian. Every person that God reconciles to Himself through faith. And so if we claim to be a Christian, what we are saying then is, I live for the glory of Christ. That's what we're saying. So why does this church exist? For the glory of Christ. Right? That's why it exists. Why does your marriage, if you're married, why does your marriage exist? For the glory of Christ. Why does your job exist? For the glory of Christ. Why do you have friends? For the glory of Christ. Again, kids, why do you, why did God make you? Because he wants you to glory, magnify, make Jesus look really big. And so if it is not your intention to desire that, if you're not currently wanting that, desiring that, striving after that, you don't have life to live as Christ. You don't have life if it's not your intention to live for the glory of Christ. You cannot claim to be changed by Christ and then go on living for your own glory or your own desires. Because if you were to do that, that'd be like flying an F-15 fighter jet and calling yourself a pacifist. It doesn't make sense. They don't go together. The two don't go together. You can't claim to be changed by Christ and then go on to glory in the sin that he came to die for. See, to be a Christian, friends, is to live for the glory of Christ. Now, listen, I realize that when I say this, some of you maybe that are not Christians are sitting next to a person that you know is messed up. And let me just affirm that. They are, all right? If you're sitting next to me, it'd be true of me. I'm a bevy of disordered loves. Too often I don't live for the glory of Christ. But friends, this was why Jesus saved us, that we might come to do that. So it's, it's, it's not that the Christian gets it right all the time. The difference is it's our intention to get it right all the time. And when we don't, we repent. We turn away from our sin. That's the difference between us and the world. Everybody's hypocritical. The difference is we're not okay with our hypocrisy. That's why Jesus' message was not just believe. Go back and read it. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus was preaching the kingdom. Not just believe the gospel. Jesus said to repent and believe the gospel. So we live for the glory of Christ, and when we get it wrong, we're sorry that we got it wrong, and we're going we're gonna to aim to get it right the next time. And that's where Christ's forgiveness meets us. Hallelujah, right? That's where his forgiveness meets us. He wipes us clean. And he happily picks us up and sends us back into the game. And says, go get him. 
play for the praise of my glorious grace as he forgives us. And in other words, there's room, friend, to miss the intention of living for the glory of Christ insofar as we're turning away from those failures, receiving the forgiveness of Christ and waking up to glory in Christ the next day or the next moment. But there is no room to claim Christ and then willfully, intentionally glory in the sin that he came to eradicate. You cannot pursue the glory of Christ or the glory of others, I should say. You cannot pursue the glory of any cause that is opposed to the mission of the glory of Christ. To be a follower of Christ is to live for Christ in all things, not just in some things when it's convenient. And friends, we understand, I want to be clear about this, when we do that, live for the glory of Christ, when we do that, that's when we're really living. That's, as we will see later, where joy comes in, even when it's hard. Now, some of you are asking, okay, helpful, Nathan, need some more practicality. Come on. Okay, let's try. A couple things we can even drill down even further into to see more practically what it means to live for Christ, to live in the glory of Christ. The first thing, a little more practically, we can see that it means is that to live for Christ is to then lose everything to gain him. Take a look over at chapter 3, verse 8. You see, that's what Paul's going to say later. Paul there says he counts all things as rubbish or trash. When I go to my trash can in my apartment, it says rubbish. And I open it up and throw the trash down there. Paul says, I'll take everything. If you go back, we'll see this like in July probably. That's how long it would take for us to get to, to, to uh, chapter 3. But we're going to see he takes all the stuff, all these titles, every good thing. No, I don't care about that. I just, I'll take all of it if I could just get Jesus. That's what it means to live for the glory of Christ. That I'll, I'll set everything aside. If I can just gain Christ. So the first thing that it means to live practically to live for Christ is to set any advantage to ourselves aside if we can just gain him. So that means we do not appeal to any earthly rights that we think we are owed. If they're opposed to Christ. That means that any urges that are not bowed to the will or commands of Christ we're not okay with those. We, we set, we're willing to set those urges aside if it means obeying him and gaining him. That means we set any acclaim that we think that we are owed. We set that aside if it means gaining Christ. We set all things aside in order to gain Christ. That's what it means. So the posture of our hearts as Christians is that while we don't always get it right, we believe that Christ is the greatest treasure of all. And we'll do anything it takes to get him even if that means personal pain. We believe, as Jesus taught us, that he is the treasure hidden in the field, that we sell everything so we can go get that treasure. We believe that as Jesus taught, that it's better to gain him than than to profit and gain the whole world. Living for Christ, then, is being willing to count all things as loss in order to gain him, gain his glory, and we do that by obeying his commandments. Second thing that it means more practically. Take a look down there at verse 22. Paul says that if he lives, it means fruitful labor. What does that mean? Well, we've seen that living is Christ. Living is for Christ. It's doing everything to gain Christ. That's the second thing we saw. And thirdly, living for Christ means fruitful labor. 
And we get what fruitful labor is in verses 24 and 25. It explains it. What fruitful labor is. In verse 24, it says it's more necessary to remain for their account. Not for his, for their account, for the church's account. Living for Christ has this bent towards others. So we just saw that living for Christ is doing everything to gain him. Secondly, it means for the glory of Christ in others. Guys, all Paul's doing here is what Jesus did in Matthew 22 when he was asked the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all this is doing. To live as Christ, to die as gain, is loving God with everything, loving neighbor in that love. That's really a summation of what he's saying. To live for Christ, we find in verse 24, is necessary for the account of others. I think we could even say particular churches. Because remember, guys, Paul is not writing to individual Christians. He's writing here to a local church, a covenanted community. So living for Christ is living for Christ's glory in the church. Enjoying Christ by pursuing Christ in others. Well, what does that look like? Verse 25. I will remain and continue with you all. There's the church. Y'all didn't know Paul was from the south, did you? Y'all. That's what it says. I will remain with you all. We in the south just say, reign with y'all. It's more efficient. Not just for individuals, guys. For you all, for the church. Christianity, guys, has always been a team sport. Always has been. Okay, continue with you all for what? Well, again, we've already seen this. For two things. For their, the church's, progress and joy in the faith. There's our answer to what it looks like practically to live for the glory of Christ. Enjoying Christ through helping others in the progress and in the joy of faith. So enjoying Christ and then moving towards Christ, people to do the same. But let's drill down on that word progress. What does that mean? What does it look like to see others progress in the glory of Christ? Well, I had fun with this this week at this point. So our, our answer to that question, friend, is found in Paul's prayer. Back in Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Do you remember that prayer? A few weeks ago. What does it mean to progress in helping others grow in the glory of Christ? Well, we go back to the thing that Paul's praying for them that they would progress in. And what was that? That their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of Christ, uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the praise and glory of God. There's his prayer. That's what it looks like to help others progress in the glory of Christ. That their love would abound, note the affectionate level, with knowledge, that's truth, that's words. And with all discernment, that's evaluation, so that they might approve what is excellent. There's action, doing stuff. The totality of that prayer. Do you notice? Helping others progress in the faith is having people. Did you notice where he starts? Started. It wasn't just discipleship. It was not just filling people's heads with facts. He started. Discipleship is aimed at love increasing. How does that come? Through knowledge and all discernment to do some actions. To prove what is excellent. 
That's what good discipleship looks like. That's what it looks like to help others progress in the faith. Two great pictures of that this week in the life of our church. I got a text message from a former member of this church that came to faith in Christ through the ministry of this church. Some of you know him. His name is Alec Veloshan. Alec sends me like 15,000 emails when he texts me. Alec, if you're listening, just call me up, brother. Uh, But he sends me this text message. Alex does. How you doing, Nathan? Brother, I'm doing great. Whatever. And he's he's like, well, listen, we just celebrated our three-year anniversary. He's up in Chicago with his wife, two daughters. How are things going up there in Chicago? Well, Nathan, I I was working out. If you all know Alec, he used to always go to the gym. He's working out. And as he's working out, he meets this guy named Dave. And he tells Dave, apparently, he tells Dave about Jesus. And he invites Dave to come to his church. And Dave shows up. And Dave is listening to the preaching. And then Alec asks Dave if he'll go out and meet with him. I don't know what exactly they did, but they read through something. They were reading maybe a book of Mark or the, the walk. They're reading a book together, and he's discipling him. He's bringing about the progress of, in their faith. And guess what happened? Dave trusted Jesus. And so Dave trusts Jesus. But here's the thing. Dave's married. Wife, not so into this. Okay? So he invites wife to come, Dave now, invites wife to come along to his baptism, okay? So there's Dave, and he's testifying. You guys have seen this before. This is what happened. This is what Jesus did. Changed my life. Alec told me about Jesus. I love Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. And this baptism I'm about to do testifies to what the gospel does. And wife is sitting out there. And wife, not into this, shows up to support her husband. Well, she gets a little interested. Guess what happens to wife? She trusts Jesus. And then she gets baptized, and then on it goes, right? So Restoration Church, Alec Veloshan, Alec Veloshan, Dave, Dave, his wife, wife, then them, who knows what. But people just changed by the love of God, passing it on, that they would be changed by the glory of Christ. Another story, really fast one. This week, sitting in a conference room in Crofton, Maryland. Never been to Crofton, Maryland was in Crofton, Maryland this week, sitting in a conference room with my wife and my two sons. We're all there. Boys, you remember that? We're sitting in there. And across the table is Haig and Laura, members of our church. And they've got their son, Jonathan, there. And in walks a woman carrying a boy named Jaden that's about, I don't know, two months old, one month old, one month old. I can't tell how old babies are. All right, they bring in Jaden, all right? Jaden, born by another woman who, because Hagen Laura put into this adoption process, they, she identifies them and says, I want them to be my son's parents. <laughs> and so they walk in, a few things happen, and they walk out with a baby. And like, he goes home with them. I mean, he might be here today. I'm, I don't, anyway. But isn't that great? They wake up, family, there they are. Okay, there they are, thank you. All right, they walk it. They wake up that morning, wife not pregnant, three, family of three. They go home, family of four. Bam. Why? For the love of God to abound more and more in Jaden's life, with knowledge and all discernment, so that Jaden will go on to approve what is excellent. That's why. That's what it looks like. It could look in a thousand different ways. We'll talk about that. But 
You don't have to have all the answers to help others progress in the glory of Christ. You just have to be willing to lose yourself for the glory of Christ in others. That's all you have to be willing to do. And when you do that, when you live for Christ by your fruitful labor of seeing him progress in others, guess what happens? Guess what happens when you do that? Joy comes. Everybody in this room wants joy. How do you get it? Helping others progress in the glory of Christ. That's how. That's what verse 25 says. Look at verse 25. He wants them to continue in, he wants to continue with the church for their progress and joy in the faith. To progress in the faith is to progress in joy because Christ is joy. John 15, 11. This is what Jesus said himself. These are the words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy would, ha- you'd have a little joy. Is that what it says? It's not up there. All right, don't worry about it. I'll read it to the rest of it. Here's what it says. There it is. Your joy may be, what's the word? Full. Progress in helping others and grow in the glory of Christ is having joy be made full. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you've always understood Christianity to be this thing that's dull and boring and the world is exciting, you got it all wrong. It's entirely the opposite. Christ comes to increase our joy. And so when we help others grow in that joy, progress in that joy, they then come to abound in that joy, in that faith, and they're glad they did as they help others go along. Living for Christ is living to gain Christ, to form Christ in others. And when we see that, we see what it means to really live. Which leads us to the second point. I'm only going to be more brief here. Dying is gain. Dying is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Why would Paul say that dying is gain? Well, friend, the answer should be obvious to us by now. Because by dying, we no longer, we, by dying, we no longer see the glory of Christ by faith. By dying, we come to see the glory of Christ by sight. By sight. And that, of course, is far better. Far better because we can finally see the grandeur of the glory of Christ with our eyes. Think back to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three guys to see the glory of Christ. And it was terrifyingly wonderful. And so when we die, when we die, we go to that great Mount of Transfiguration every day to see the glory of Christ in all of its fullness in heaven. That's what heaven is. It's the Mount of Transfiguration every day. Death is a doorway into the forever glory of the forever mount of transfiguration, which is heaven. So when we die, we get to enjoy Christ in a way we do not now. Now, while we who are in Christ are justified, we are still being sanctified, right? We still war with our flesh. We are completely saved in Christ, but we still war with our flesh. But then in heaven... Not only will we no longer war with our sinful flesh, we will get to see him of whom our soul loves. And in that way, dying is gain. It's gain because we get unhindered access to Christ. And there we can finally do what God made us to do perfectly, to know him and enjoy him forever. And that is far better. While we're here, guys, just briefly, 
Let's just observe what happens to Christians when they die. What do we see in this passage? What happens to Christians when they die now in this age? They are ushered into the presence of Christ. That's what it says there, right? To live, to die is gain. So we don't know all that that means when people die and they go be with you. We don't know enough about it. But listen, we know enough to say that it's gain, right? We can say that much. It's gain. Their soul The body stays here, but the soul goes, those that are in Christ, the soul goes to be in the presence of Christ. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. So that means, guys, listen, that means that we can reject the teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist church that tells us that when we die, we enter into soul sleep. That is, our souls and our bodies are both sleeping. They're not in heaven, as it were. That's not true. Paul makes it clear that those who are in Christ, their souls are immediately ushered into the presence of Christ. And yes, our bodies are awaiting the day of consummation when they will bring about the resurrection, but our souls are alive in Christ when we die. Now, like I said earlier, most of us in this room are not prepared to say that dying is far better and gain. And I ran four miles yesterday, and it liked to kill me. Why do I do that? Because I don't want to die. Right? That's why. Why do I eat, I don't know, healthy stuff? It doesn't taste good. Because I don't want to die. Right? But we got to get to a place, guys. we got to get to a place where we understand and are meditating and thinking about how the glory of Christ is better. And so if I do die, it doesn't mean I need to eat McDonald's every day, but it does mean... <laughs> It does mean that, I, that if I do and I die today, it's going to be okay. Not only will it be okay, I'm going to rejoice. And you can rejoice for me. You can mourn for yourselves. But listen, I'm good because I'm with Jesus. And listen, if you die, you are in Christ. You enjoy the presence of Christ. And that's far better. We've got to get to a place to where that's normal, to where that's the way we're thinking. That's a way that we can be a great apologetic to the world that's trying to prolong life. So we say, listen, I, I want to live as long as I can to be fruitful, laborious towards the church. But listen, if I don't, that's cool. I'm good. I'm going to be with Jesus. And the world looks at that and says, that's strange. What a great opportunity right there. Most of us are not there, though. Most of us are doing everything we can do to not die. In fact, for some of us, dying is terrifying because it seems like the end. But if you are in Christ, it's not the end. It's only the beginning. See, we oftentimes fear death because either we don't know what comes next or we are more aware of what we are losing than what we are gaining. So to the first, about fearing death because you don't know what comes next, you could look at this passage and you can see what comes next. You get unhindered access to the King of Kings whose love for you is unfailing. The Bible teaches that no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We have no reason to fear and every reason to be excited. There's a great story of an old pastor by the name of Henry Venn. Henry Venn was a pastor in England during the 18th century. And he was on his deathbed. He was was dying and someone came to him and informed him as he was dying that he was about to die. And do you know what Henry Venn did? He got so excited, he lived for an additional two weeks. (laughs) True story. 
We've got to get that gear in us. We've got to get that gear in us, guys. We've got to learn how to cultivate that idea in our lives. And as to those who are more aware of what they are losing, oh, Christian, look to Jesus and see all that you gain. You may lose a friend. You may lose a spouse. But you gain a heavenly husband. You gain the line of the tribe of Judah. You gain him more experientially. He becomes yours if you are in Christ. And if you are loved ones who are in Christ, if your loved ones are in Christ, listen, you're going to see them soon enough, right? You're going to spend the rest of eternity with them. And, and if they don't know Christ, if your closest friends and family don't know Christ, all the more reason to share the hope of Christ with them. So we've got to get to a place in our lives where, as Christians where we agree with Paul that dying is game because it magnifies Christ through our getting to be with him and enjoy him. Another pastor in England, a Welshman by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, incredibly gifted preacher who lived in the middle part of the 20th century and just days before his death, he told his closest friends and his family members, don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from glory. Don't pray God would heal me. I want to get into the glory. Where is that in us? We've got to cultivate that. That's a man, right, that we could say, was, that we could say honestly, to live as Christ and die as gain. So if you're anything like me, you still, as I mentioned, have a long way to go to say something like that and mean it, to live as Christ and die as gain. But listen, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get to a place where that's true, where I can say it and mean it. You want to know how? Because verse 25 tells me how. Through your prayers for me and the help of the Spirit of Jesus. I'm going to get there. And you're going to get there, Christian, as we pray for you and the Spirit of Christ helps you You're going to get there. You're going to get to a place where you can say to live is Christ and die is gain. But you've got to regularly be placing yourself in the channels of his grace that you would be filled up. And I want you to know something. I'm going to end on this. I want you to know something very important here. Paul has complete confidence. He can say for me to live is Christ and die is gain. And did you notice he never expresses any confidence in himself. Nowhere in that passage. He has complete confidence, full courage, total confidence, but he has not ever, not one time does he mention anything in himself that brings about that confidence. He has complete confidence, full courage in the prayers of God's people and in the spirit of Christ to get him there. And that's where his confidence is going to get take him to the finish line. And so listen, Christian, don't leave here today thinking about all that you have to do in order to live for Christ and die. Game. Do not leave here thinking like that. Leave here with the same kind of confidence Paul has, trusting in the prayers of God's people and the help of the Spirit. That's where your confidence is. Not in you, in God's people praying for you and the help of the Spirit. That's where your confidence is, okay? It's in Christ. It's in his spirit. It's in his people, which reminds me, Restoration Church, if you are a member of this church, you covenanted to pray for each other. You said you'd do that. And of course, you you said you'd do that because the Bible asks you to do that, calls you to do that. And so what a great tool this is, right? 
you remember this church, you know what this is. This is our membership directory. So there are names and there are faces in here. And we're praying for one another. Those that are members of this church, we said we're going to pray for each other. And we see what that prayer does in this, don't we? That when we start praying for, these, for, each, for each other, God uses those prayers to help us progress and have joy in the faith through His work and the Spirit in us. And so are you praying? Are you praying through the role? My family will oftentimes, we, we've done this in the past, where we just keep that right next to us, and before we eat, we pray for one or two people. In your devotional times, you pray for one or two people. And isn't it fun to think God's using those prayers as we pray for ourselves. He's going to use those prayers combined with the help of the Spirit to get us home and to have us be delivered, whether no matter whether we live or whether we die. This church, I pray, this church could say, through our prayer for one another and the help of the Spirit, we can say to live as Christ and die as game. Whether we live or whether we die, it don't matter. Christ is going to be magnified. We're praying for each other. We're helping each other. And the Spirit is at work in us. And we will get home to glory. For we will get to stand in His presence and see Him together and sing of the greatness of His glory. That day is coming. And so, friend, if you are here this morning and you have not trusted Christ, this praise of the glorious grace, this living for the glory of Christ, this living for Christ, dying for grain, if this is foreign to you, even joy in the faith is foreign to you, then listen, friend, I want to appeal to you to trust Christ. And He will give you glory. How? Because Christ, the reason why we glorify him for many reasons, one of which is he lived a sinless life. He died our death as a sacrifice for our sins and rose on the third day to grant us his glory and share it with us through faith. And so your faith in the work of Christ and the person of Christ will likewise give you glory and give you faith and give you confidence to say, I love Jesus and I want to be with him forever. And so I appeal to you to trust Jesus. And if you want to talk more about that, you let me know. But I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to have a meal together and ask Christ to be glorified in us. Let's pray. Father, we say we want to say and have it mean and have it be true of us to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because we live for the glory of Christ, we count all things as lost to gain Christ, and we live for the progress and the joy of others in Christ. That your glory, that the glory of Christ would be magnified. That's our desire, God. And where we do not, where we don't want to die because we're scared, May your mercy meet us there and comfort us with the glory of Christ. May we be a church that spends ourselves for Christ and his people in this community and around the world. We do not trust ourselves, God. We trust the prayers of these people combined with your spirit to get us there. And in that, we can have confidence. Thank you, God, that we can. We need it. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well.
I mentioned that we would have a meal. This is a family meal. This is a covenanted meal. Um, and this is a glorifying, a Christ-glorifying meal. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, when he was on the earth, he lived that sinless life on the night before his death. He came to a table with the Lord. So it was what we now celebrate, the Lord's Supper. It was a Passover meal. And he held up a piece of bread and he did so to represent himself. This is my body, he said. It represents my body. And he broke it in two to illustrate that his body would be broken. And he said to eat of this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of my greatness of my glory. And then he held up a cup, a cup of wine, and he said, drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. Drink in remembrance of me. And this meal <laughs> was a glorious meal. See, God knew how forgetful we are. We forget his glory, and we oftentimes want to live in ourselves and our own glory. And so this meal is here to remember the glory of Christ. And so it is for those that have trusted Christ, walking in faithfulness of Christ. Those who are not just repentant, they are repenting in their sins and trusting Jesus and desire to say to live as Christ and die as gain. His glory, not mine. If that describes you, turning from sin, trusting Jesus, come and enjoy the covenant meal where you can taste and drink the glory of Christ. If you're not a Christian, if that doesn't describe you, your intention is not to live for the glory of Christ, uh, and you lean into those sins, then let me encourage you to stay where you are and think about the greatness of the glory of Christ. Um, and we'd be glad to talk to you about that. I know that'll be strange because there's going to be a lot of people standing up, but it'll be good for you to examine yourself and think about Jesus instead of taking this meal. But if it does describe you, come and gladly eat. Remembrance of him and remembrance that the day of Christ is coming. Remember, guys, that as we eat, Christ obeyed life and death for glory. And when we eat, we remember that. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to come up in a moment and uh, I'm going to help us sort of take this meal together. Three lines will be formed. One, two, three. You come down, take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, go back, have a moment of examination and prayer and thanksgiving to Christ examination. I'll come up and I'll facilitate us eating it together, okay? Brief prayer. Here we go. Let's pray for his glory to meet us in this meal. God, help us. Help us to reflect on the greatness of the glory of Christ in his body and in his blood. And may we enjoy it as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.